You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was very excited to have Vasant Dar from NYU on the podcast today. I think leaders could learn a really valuable lesson where Vasant says, it's not necessarily about that AI is a new technology in search of a problem, but what we really need are leaders who can think, think more deeply, use philosophy to learn how to ask better questions and think about your own thinking and make scenarios about the future and figure that out and get really clear and then use generative AI to help you go about solving those things. You know, I I often say that I tell people to study philosophy because it helps them think about how to ask the right questions. And then I also advise people to get as deep as they can into computing. The deeper you understand the technology, the better you're going to be able to manage people who are working with it. This week, I'm speaking with Vasant Dar about the rise of artificial intelligence at work and how to make sure you're learning what you need now so you can stay ahead in the years to come. Vasan has been at the forefront of AI research for decades. He was awarded a PhD on the topic in 1984 and was among the first to bring machine learning to Wall Street when he founded SCT Capital, a hedge fund that used machine learning to make trading decisions. He's a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, a Udemy Leadership Academy instructor, and the host of the Brave New World podcast, all about how AI will impact us in the future and in the present. I've had the pleasure of learning and partnering with him for over a decade. Vasant, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Alan. A pleasure. It's been a while since we've had a conversation. Very excited. I'm going to dive right in. Vasant, you've been deep diving on this topic for 40 years, and I've heard you say it's been a disappointment for 50 years. So I'd like to start with just, can you give us a short history of AI from your journey? How did we get here? Sure. So I got into AI, in fact, thanks to Herb Simon and uh, Harry Popel, who had developed the first system for medical diagnosis that covered the entire field of internal medicine. And that was my first exposure to AI, just watching this expert, Jack Myers, talk to internist. And you know he was having a dialogue. And there was a little bit of a Q&A between him and the machine, and his assistant was typing because he didn't know how to type. And at some point, the machine asked him a question, and he said, why are you asking me this question? And the machine said, well, because the evidence you've given me so far is consistent with the following hypotheses, and this question will help me discriminate between the top two. Uh, and I was just like, what is this? You know, like, I've never seen a computer do this, you know, have a dialogue with a human being. And here we are you know, 40, 45 years later, and now we have ChatGPT, which can, you know, have a similar conversation, but actually in English, instead of like a stilted, structured kind of language. And it can talk about all kinds of things, you know. And so the journey really has been from an era of expert systems where this knowledge was painstakingly specified and entered into the system, you know, to machine learning, where knowledge was created from data, but there was still a bottleneck. You know, the, the first paradigm went through what I call a knowledge engineering bottleneck. It was just very difficult to specify and extract knowledge from humans. Then machine learning came to the rescue. We now had data to create knowledge, to create rules. But then there was a feature engineering bottleneck where you had to go from raw data to features. 
And then deep learning came to the rescue because now you could work with raw data in its primitive form, like language, images, sound, you know, without having to do feature engineering. But within these paradigms, AI was still sort of application specific. And the latest paradigm is one I call of general intelligence, not AGI, but general intelligence. And I call it that because now we have these pre-trained models from which we can build applications that weren't envisioned when these pre-trained models were built, right? So ChatGPT is a model that's an application that's built on top of a large language model, as are many other applications, right? So we're seeing this emergence of what I call general intelligence, thanks to the emergence of these pre-trained models, which have actually surprised us with the kind of capability that they provide. I'm wondering, could you could you explain to us what an LLM is and what pre-trained is. Can you give us a basic understanding for the average non-technical person? Yeah. So an LLM is basically a model that when given a sequence of tokens, let's say words, it predicts the next one, right? So if you say, you know, Alan and I were having a, it'll predict that the next word is conversation, uh, but it could also be chat, or it could also be argument, right? There could be lots of ways to predict what the next token should be. Um, and that's really all that a language model does. That's it in a nutshell, right? If you give it a sequence and it predicts the next one in the sequence, right? And what's amazing is that given something so simple, how can we build these really amazingly sophisticated conversational agents and stuff like that? You know, and I had a conversation on Brave New World with my colleague, Sam Bowman, who's a natural language expert. And I said, what was it? And he said, you know, we got lucky because we picked a task of just the right level of difficulty that we could solve. That is predict the next word in the sequence. It was a hard problem, but there was so much data that we solved it. And in the process of solving it, the machine actually learned something else as well, right? It learned all kinds of other things that it needed to learn in order to be really good at predicting the next word in the sequence. And that was a surprise, Vasant? That was a surprise. And, and by the way, you asked what a large language model, that's what it is, right? It predicts the next word. Now, what you have is applications like ChatGPT that are built on top of the language model through additional training, right? So now you basically say, all right, language model, here are a bunch of question and answers that sort of give you a sense of you know, what we're looking for. And it learns from that, and then it learns to converse. It can learn to design things. It can learn all kinds, of, you know, it can learn to do all kinds of other things through sort of minimal prompting and, and channeling that sort of pre-trained model. Yeah, and I wanna, I wanna get to that, but I wanna ask, Tom Friedman wrote a piece, a Quake piece in the New York Times calling the era of Gen AI our Promethean moment. And I wanna quote him, because I, I, I thought it was powerful. And here's what he said. He said, it's one of those moments in history when certain new tools, ways of thinking, or energy sources are introduced that are such a departure and advanced on what existed before that you can't just change one thing. You have to change everything. That is how you create, how you compete, how you collaborate, how you work, how you learn, how you govern, and yes, how you cheat, commit crimes, and fight wars. So, Vasant, is this our... Promethean moment? And is this discovery as big as fire? So I agree with the last part of what you were saying, right? It changes everything, right? It really does change everything. And the reason it changes everything is because now we can talk to computers on our terms, right? 
Before this, we had to talk to them on their terms. We had to basically shoehorn everything so that they could, quote unquote, understand us, right? Now we're talking to them on our terms, which changes everything. Now, that said, I should point out that we shouldn't get carried away with how much we have. So from the inside, progress has been steady, even though AI sort of captured the world's imagination in November of 2022 because of ChatGPT. In fact, the progress has been incremental, you know, from the inside. It's just that that's when it caught the world's imagination because that's when anyone could talk to a computer about anything in a conversational kind of way. And that's what changed everything. And it will change all of those things that you listed. But we should be uh, cautious to sort of not over-attribute how much intelligence the machine really has, right? There's a quote by Jeff Hinton that says that it's almost like we have aliens that have come you know, and landed, but we're having a hard time taking it in because they speak such good English. <laughs> and so we can conflate their conversational ability with intelligence, which they currently lack in spades, right? So as impressive as AI is and as impressive and as much as it requires us to change the way we think about everything, which is true, we're a long ways from what people call artificial general intelligence. So there's a long way to go still. Yeah. You mentioned a skeptic. I'm going to mention another one. You had Gary Smith from Pomona College on your podcast, and, yes. and he, wrote, he wrote a book. I love the title. The AI Delusion and Distrust, Big Data, Data Torturing, and the Assault on Science. And it's kind of a sober counter to all of this, arguing that data are dumb, which you just said. So do the skeptics have a case? They do have a case. So Gary makes some really good points. But, you know, at some I mean, I really enjoyed reading his book. But at some point, I was like, come on, Gary, get serious, right? I mean, <laughs> surely, you know, people aren't going to be stupid enough to believe that the stock market is related to the depth of a river in Bangladesh. I mean, you know, you got to get your head examined if you truly believe that, right? So there are responsible ways of doing it. And I told Gary that, to be honest, I've been on the receiving end from economists from a long time who just refused to give this the light of day because it was strange to them, right? And so they just ignored them until such time as you couldn't ignore them anymore, right? So, uh, you know, so, and but you know, to summarize, Gary's main point is, and this is very valid, is that you can't come up with a theory once you know the answer, right? So you can't look at the data and say, hey, guys, here's the theory, right? But I think that's a little extreme, right? There are ways to actually learn from data, and there's plenty of evidence in the history of science that data has sparked new ideas sparked new hypotheses. And that's what the, the the essence of machine learning is about. So my sort of response to people like Gary is that, you know, you're taking this a little too far, you know, that you're just throwing away all of the good stuff just because some people do it badly. Yeah. And, and I thought you made a good argument that you're like, hey, I've discovered new things about investing that I didn't know by feeding a bunch of data into a machine. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think as humans, we tend to overrate ourselves, you know? I mean, and my favorite line is this Clint Eastwood one, you know, where, you know, he says, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> so, there are some things that the machine will just do better than us, right? And philosophers of science, you know, uh, centuries ago, I don't think they'd envisioned an era where hypotheses could come from a machine, right? Yeah. The hypothesis always came from a human and you gather data to refute the hypothesis, right? That's been sort of standard scientific method for centuries. and But now we've got a, another entity that can generate hypotheses and test them as well. And it may be able to generate hypotheses that we never even thought about. 
And I think all of this, you can be an extreme skeptic or an extreme overbeliever. And I think you've said, you know, you're somewhere in the middle. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, I, I am in the middle. I've always believed in AI. I've always be- believed in machine learning. I, I thought it was around the corner in the 90s. But sometimes things just take a lot longer than you expect because, you know, the world isn't ready for it, either in terms of the infrastructure not being mature enough or people not being ready enough, right? And personally, I got, you know, I got to that point at one stage in my career where I said, like, am I just imagining this thing? Because no one else seems to be, in, you know, believing it. Maybe I'm just deluding myself, you know, and then it happened bigger than I'd ever expected. Yeah, it felt like overnight. That's that's why Tom Friedman called it the Promethean moment. Yeah, um, yeah. So when when OpenAI launched ChatGPT, within two months, it had 100 million monthly active users. And Baidu launched their Ernie bot, and it had a million users in 19 hours. As soon as they launched it, four additional Chinese companies launched LLM chatbots. I could go on and on and on forever. You've called it the Wild West. So are we in a race to create LLMs, Basant, or in a race to create specific solutions that sit on top of LLMs? Or is it both? Well, you know, your audience is business people, right? So business people aren't out to create LLMs. They're out to create solutions using LLMs. You know, I was talking to Piyush Gupta, the CEO of um, DBS Bank in Singapore, and we were talking about, you know, whether you can actually use language models to actually capture the expertise of, let's say, employees who've left the company, right? So you say, you know, I started this amazing programmer, Alan, and he left, and you know, I really want to use Alan's skills to solve this. Like, let's fire up Alan's avatar, you know, and have him write the program, right? I mean, is that legitimate or, or are we getting into sort of, you know, IP ownership issues? But to come back to your question, the goal really is to solve problems, not to create LLMs. Right. So as a company, as a business leader, do you do you have to align to one or many? Do you have to pick Google or Anthropic or OpenAI or Microsoft let me ask you, is it going to be a dozen companies and will it like search? Will it whittle down to three or four important companies with LLMs? Let me see. Let's, let me look at my crystal ball here, Alan, and uh, <laughs> tell you, well, I think the expected value is 12. I don't know. It's um, like I said, we are in Wild West um, you know, era. There are all kinds of initiatives underway. Some believe that LLMs should be open source. And and I think in the long run, there's certainly a case to be made for that. It's hard to say which way things will pan out. I think we'll see everything. You know, we'll see four. I mean, I'm using, you know, ChatGPT4 to actually create a bot of, uh, of an investment advisor. And, you know, I'm faced with decision myself. Should I use GPT4? Should I use Llama? Should I start with GPT4, build the best model, and then distill it down to a less sophisticated model? So there's all kinds of ways to think about this. And I think what we'll see is everything, right? We'll see some of everything going forward, right? Some people will say, let's just use the best, right? Let's just use ChatGPT. You know, let's pay for it. It's proprietary, but it's the best. Others will say, well, let's use it, but then let's move to open source. Others will start with open source and say, you know, we don't want to get stuck in this proprietary sort of morass. So I think we're just going to see everything. You know, you got me thinking, I read a piece in the journal and it was basically, we're going to use open source LLMs and completely exploit them for phishing and nefarious use and have no guardrails ever. And I'm wondering what you think about 
all the big reputable people are talking about guardrails for AI, but isn't it, you know, kind of like the original quote from Tom Friedman, isn't it equally as powerful to use? It's kind of like nuclear power. You can, you could power a whole country or you could blow up the whole world. This kind of bad stuff, it seems like that's just as much a possibility as good. Not only is it a possibility, it's already happening. And we're going to see more of it. You know, I was uh, um, at a panel at the law school with some of my co- colleagues uh, a few weeks ago, including uh, Jan LeCun, and I gave this example of a young woman who uh, one morning woke up to find herself on Pornhub in a porn film. Someone had taken a face and strapped it on to you know, all kinds of images. And she went to the police and the police said, it's not clear to us that a crime has been committed let alone like trying to figure out who this person was because he'd used uh, VPNs and hidden himself. So we're not ready for this world that's already here. Our norms aren't ready. Our laws are not adequate. So we're relatively unprotected against the risks of AI. I think Jan would claim that we'll, we'll solve these as we go along, right? We've always solved problems as they become apparent. And, you know, that's reasonable thinking, right? I mean, uh, comp- all these social media companies had, you know, couldn't have envisioned the kinds of behaviors that we would see uh, when they were launched. And, you know, to their credit, they're trying as hard as they can. But it's really sort of an arms race. And, and now that the world has opened up with these pre-trained models to anyone, you have tremendous power at your fingertips, and you can use that in any way you want, including in really negative and destructive ways. So we will see that. I mean, you know, there is a dark side to humanity that is, by the way, also encoded in these language models because they're pre-trained on everything. It's just that we sort of channel them and put guardrails around them. But these are by no means, you know, impregnable. And and so, yeah, we will we'll see more of that in all likelihood going forward. Yeah. So let's assume like businesses and government organizations can't afford hallucinations and mistakes, right? When they're building bots for sales or customer service or even more important stuff like retirement planning or mortgage advice. So how should business leaders think about that now? How do they think about protecting themselves from getting in trouble and having a bot say the wrong thing? Yeah. I mean, that's a big, big unsolved problem at this point. You know, my uh, position on that is that you don't want to use them for high stakes applications, right? You want to use these for low risk applications where, you know, you are reasonably certain that the machine isn't going to make really, really costly errors. And that's sort of an empirical question to a large degree, right? There's just no substitute other than extensive analysis, training, you know, evaluation of results to really get a sense of where the risks are, where the blind spots are. And there will always be blind spots, right? That's my experience in finance was, and I wrote a a paper called Algorithms in Crisis, which was all about COVID and the dilemma I faced, which was, has the machine ever seen anything like this before? Should I trust it or should I intervene and, and do something about it, right? And the way I always looked at this in finance was that, I've got to strike the right balance between eating well and sleeping well, right? So I shouldn't be taking more risk than 
I know will is likely to get me into trouble or could get me into trouble. And, you know, I would draw the same analogy, which is that you'll always have these machines making mistakes, but you need to get your head around what kinds of mistakes will they make and how costly are they? And that's a big unsolved problem going forward, because at the moment we are sort of in this phase where we're enamored with the functionality of chat GPT. Like, look what it can do that it couldn't do before. Like, this is amazing. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. You know, yesterday I was looking at a version of multimodal chat GPT that took in like price charts of nat gas and was giving me advice about whether I should buy nat gas. And it was talking about support and resistance levels and stuff like that. Amazingly, you know, um, competent sounding. It sounded just like a professional analyst, right? But am I going to trust it? Not really, because it could be hallucinating, but it's really up to me through multiple sort of trials and examples to get a sense of what's it really doing? You know, should I really trust it? How good is it? And this whole question of like, how good is it is a is, is an open question that really hasn't been solved by most businesses just yet. Yeah. You know, Eight years ago, you wrote a piece in Harvard Business Review, when to trust bots with decisions and when not to. And you put out a framework that's, it's what you said, right? It's framework, like how well known is the decision from like, we know nothing to we know everything to yeah. uh, um, how much do we trust the machine? I thought it was a great framework. And, and I'm wondering, is there an update on that in the era of Gen AI? And is there something that we could do to get orders of magnitude better at decision making? You know, I, I use that framework all the time. And it basically says that trust is a function of how often you're wrong and the consequences of being wrong, right? If a system is never wrong, then you should trust it. It's never wrong. But if it's wrong some of the time, should you trust it? Well, it depends on the, the cost of its errors. But you know, like I said, I sort of look at the world that way. You know, I refer to this law school conference where I use the same framework to position problems in the legal space, you know, on that sort of two by two, where I said, okay, on the bottom right, which is very few mistakes, not severe mistakes. You know, you have like all kinds of advisory services that can be made available to people that they don't have access to right now. They've got to pay 500 bucks an hour to a lawyer to get sort of basic services, right? That kind of stuff will and should be automated and, and provided to people, right? Where people can go and get sort of basic kind of legal advice on problems. And the machine says, look, this is kind of general advice, but you know, if you want to get more detail, you've got to do some work, right? So those are sort of low error situations. On the other hand, you know, Danny Kahneman on my, on my podcast referred to crimes where he says, for example, for a crime where the average sentence is seven years, on average, two, two judges will defer by more than four years, more than half the time, right? Tremendous variance in, in that arena of sentencing. And, and so to me, for example, in the legal arena, we need to go and actually understand the degree of noise or inconsistency or variance that there exists in human decision-making that isn't fair at the moment, right? It's not fair if someone gets 11 years, you know, just because their judge's football team lost on Sunday, you know, versus three years if the football team won, right? That's just not fair and it's not right. And so people say, well, you know, you can't trust machines with those, but... My answer to that is, well, do you really want to trust humans with that kind of decision? So we've got a lot of work ahead of us in many arenas to actually get our heads around this data. And firstly, how well are humans doing in terms of decision making? And then ask ourselves, how much can we improve this with AI? 
buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So I want to bring this now down to the idea of what's happening now. There's these unlimited broad use cases and that these models can do things they weren't trained to do. They can write jokes and write poems and summarize research and pass tests. And for fun, I asked Bard to be Plato and have a conversation with me about the dialogues. And it was as if I was talking to the world's greatest philosopher who died 2000 years ago. Like I could have the full interaction. Yeah. And Sam Altman says, we're going to have a co-pilot app for everything. Mustafa Suleiman, ex-DeepMind Google, said, we're all going to have a personal chief of staff within five years. So I'm wondering, what do you think about, what are some of the broad use cases? How's this going to change the way we live or work? I think everything's going to change about work assistance, like personal assistance for all kinds of things, whether it's intellectual work or emotional kinds of things, right? People, you know, there's already existence of like AI mates, girlfriends, where some men actually find that they're happier talking to a machine, you know, that sort of gives them that emotional support that they need. So the future is wide open in terms of where we'll see AI in our lives. And I, and I think they're right. I think we're going to see them in virtually every aspect of our lives, professional, personal, everything. Yeah, and I'm trying to imagine for our audience, these are emerging leaders and senior leaders. So we always think about all things leadership. And Goldman Sachs did research on all the occupations, right? They studied the 900 ONET occupations and 2000 European occupations. And among a lot of other conclusions, they think they predict about 32% of what a manager does can be automated by Gen AI. And I'm curious, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, hard to get at precise numbers. I mean, that sounds like consultants speak. Sure, like, 32 sounds reasonable, right? But there are probably tasks where it's 90 and there are probably tasks where it's 10. But I, I, I can see that there's a whole distribution of possibilities here. But I think the net impact will be that people will become more productive, you know, that it'll just help you do more in a shorter amount of time, which means that you'll need less people to do the same amount of work or you'll be able to do a lot more work with the same number of people, right? Now, Hard to say which way it's going to change employment patterns, but I would expect to see a lot of pressure on employment, right? I'd expect to see sort of the obvious thing play out, which is just do more with fewer people. And I've raised this question with some of my guests. It's like, why do we need all these people doing all this stuff? You know, wouldn't a thousand companies with a thousand employees be able to satisfy the world's needs eventually? And what are the rest of us going to do? Oh, yeah. What's the answer? <laughs> I guess the answer is like do more, right? Because because we always do we always want to do more, right? Human beings are sort of inherently innovative, so we're going to do more. But on the dark side, I think many humans will become inherently unemployable because the bar keeps rising, and so yeah, and that's what makes a lot of people sort of turn to you know possibilities like universal basic income you know, and preserving the dignity of humanity and things like that. So, you know, that same Goldman piece, they argued using historical references that 
we could expect a 7%, again, you, you know, it's like you called it consultant speak, a 7% increase in global GDP. Global GDP is now over 100 trillion. So they're believing we're going to add 7 trillion to the top line. So I look at that as 7 trillion of brand new economic value added created by nothing more than technology. But for that to be true, it presupposes that people have to reskill and retool. They can't be Luddites. They've got to go build some new skills and get the new jobs. Can humans keep up with the pace of change? You know, you can ask yourself the same question with other technological revolutions, you know, including the massive displacement of auto workers in the 80s, right? You, you know, you're going to have some people who can't retool, right? I mean, beyond a certain age, your plasticity is lower, you know, you have less of an ability to retool. But I'm already seeing the retooling happening among younger people. Data science has gone from sort of nowhere to being sort of the most popular class on campus, right? So people are already retooling. The younger people are already retooling. The older people sort of get caught in that middle, right? People in their 50s, 60s. It's sort of hard for older people to retool, but I already see the younger people retooling. And so, yeah, so I think that assumes that all of these people will be employed and productive and contributing to GDP. But Vasant, isn't 50 the new 30? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed so yeah. does that mean you and i can keep learning yeah we well i yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely i think we are becoming more plastic you know i guess over time i feel like i'm learning all the time so and that becomes a necessity right it's like lifelong learning yeah exactly i, I mean that, as as i see it lifelong learning is now a mandate the pace of change is faster than ever and it's not going to slow down Exactly. Yeah. And and it's become part and, and lifelong learning, to be honest, has become easier, right, than it used to be, right? You don't have to like schlep three hours to show up in the class and another three hours to get home, right? You can do it with amazing materials that are available online. So it's become easier to engage in lifelong learning. Yeah. What one of the beefs I've had forever is we've got the equivalent of the Library of Alexandria online, free courses from Harvard and MIT and NYU and unlimited anything in the world. And we still basically watch sports and porn for 90%, you know, or the top, the top, the top websites, news maybe. And I wonder, are we amusing ourselves to death to quote an old NYU's professor? We, we are amusing ourselves to death. Yeah. 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 So we are indeed amusing ourselves to death. That was an NYU professor, right? Neil Postman. Neil Postman. Yes. Yes. From I, NYU wrote that. It's one of my favorite books. That's a Quake book for me, amusing ourselves to death, because you read this book this guy wrote in 1979, 1980. 71. Yeah. yeah. But you read it today and you're like, oh my gosh, every single thing in this book is correct today. You could look at Gen AI and you're going, it's exactly right today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, great book. As they say, you can uh, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. So all of these tools are available out there. So they're there for us, but you know, you've got to be motivated to use them. So give us the advice now for the early career person. Let's say I'm an MBA student at NYU Stern and I dream of being a future business leader in a career. I'm now entering the work world. Is there anything we can do to stay up to speed? Is there anything we should be reading or doing or watching or thinking about or practicing in a daily life? You know, I I often say that I tell people to study philosophy because it helps them think about how to ask the right questions. And then I also advise people to get as deep as they can into computing. 
just so that they're familiar with the language and thinking of our future overlords. Um, but, but, you know, facetiousness aside, I teach a tech MBA class. And, and my advice to them is, you know, just get as deep as you can into the technology as you can comfortably, because you're going to be dealing with this all the time, right? It's, it's just out there and you're going to be managing engineers and all kinds of people. And so you really have to be able to deal with it. And one of the things I find about, let's say, people who are purely technical, right, that they don't often know how to think, you know, that the business thinking is lacking. And that is the area where there's tremendous scope for good leaders to really leverage the technology and people is by getting them to think in ways that are productive from a business standpoint. And so... There's a huge amount of channeling uh, that's necessary to make people productive. And it starts from the top. It starts from the top in the sense of being clear about what you want to achieve. And at the moment, I'm not seeing a whole lot of clarity about this from senior management, right? So when I talk to senior managers in businesses, at the moment, I'm seeing sort of a lot of FOMO. I'm seeing confusion. I'm seeing you know, we need to do something, but what do we need to do? Let's get our tech people together. And it's almost like, you know, it reminds me of sort of the internet moment in the 90s. And I was on Wall Street at that time, bringing AI to Wall Street in the 90s, but then the internet was emerging. And we were in a very similar sort of situation where people said, like, what is this thing? Like, are people actually going to transact on it? Will people trust, give their credit card information on it? Like, you remember those days, right? There was of course, so much confusion, yeah. right? And in, in the finance world, we were talking about Let's just open our mind to the possibilities that this creates, right? And in banks, it was like, oh, we could go from T plus five to T plus zero, like instant settlement. Like, what are the implications of that? What are the implications of where location becomes irrelevant, right? What are the implications in terms of like what that means in terms of how we talk to our customers? It's the same. It's sort of deja vu all over again. But unlike the internet, which sort of emerged you know, as a new technology, AI has been around for 60 years, but there's still that sort of confusion about like, what do we do about it? How do we harness it? So I see that as essential for senior management is just getting some clarity around what it means for the business and then being able to communicate that to, you know, middle management who are then able to manage this, you know, tremendously powerful technical talent and sort of channel it in the right direction. That's the biggest management challenge. You know, it's so interesting you say that. It goes back to the argument about the humanities or life skills, or some people call them durable skills. But so much of this goes all the way back thousands of years. If you look at the original rhetoric, the art of persuasive speaking or critical thinking and philosophy and that's what you're describing, business decision-making and problem-solving. You just said, you know, ask all these what-if scenarios is what you did on Wall Street. And it's surprising to me that that's what people are still missing. So within AI here, you're not saying go out and study LLMs. You're saying study decision-making and philosophy with a foundation in computer science. Like you have to, ha you have to be able to converse. Yes, and there's no getting away from thinking about how this is going to transform businesses, industries, and break down boundaries, you know, which is what the internet did, right? The internet 
broke down traditional boundaries. Like, is Amazon a retailer? Is it a tech company? What is it, right? It, it just sort of broke those sort of preconceptions. And AI is going to do the same thing. When I was at Morgan Stanley, we had someone who came in and started doing scenario thinking, which was an interesting new way to think about, let's say, how the internet would transform financial services, right? But we're at the same kind of moment now. And for us at that time, we would say, okay, what are the scenarios? Well, uh, how about if rates go down or rates go up? Well, that's sort of one axis, you know. What's another axis? Another axis could be, you know, AI works really well versus it continues to be debuggy or it becomes general purpose versus it stays siloed, right? So there's many ways to think about the future and then think about, are you willing to bet on any of these or do you want to position yourself for all of those possibilities, right? That's the challenge for senior management. You know, do you want to make a bet or do you want to hedge? You know, what do you think the possible future scenarios are and how do you want to position yourself for them? Yeah, so the discipline of scenario planning, it feels like it's at a pretty rising in importance right now in your mind. I think so. I think so. Because it's not clear what the path of AI is going to be. There's a number of ways I can think of, you know, doing scenario planning. In fact, I asked ChatGPT this, you know, like, how would you think about scenarios for AI? And that was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about your points and and trying to summarize for our listeners the key takeaways. Um, Study philosophy, right? (laughs) Which I think is really interesting. But you said that you believe that philosophy helps people think better, right? Yeah, I mean, it helps you think about what a good question is, right? Or asking the right question. What's a good question? Right? I mean, th- that's often, you know, when I teach, someone asks a question, oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, what makes a question a good question, right? And philosophy forces you to ask yourself that question. What's a good question? Yeah, I love it. So we're at philosophy and thinking and learning. Like those are the things... But you also said you have to have some grounding in computer science. So people should be sort of data literate, AI literate, tech literate. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it, it helps to understand computing to whatever depth you can. Right. The deeper you understand the technology, the better you're going to be able to manage people who are working with it. Right. You have a much better sense of what's doable, what's not doable, what's going to take too long, what's too risky. That's not easy. Right. I, I referred earlier to the fact that I'm trying to build a bot around a financial advisor, right? So all kinds of questions I'm asking myself, is that even possible? How should I think about it? Then what does it even mean to build a bot that describes this person, right? There's no one answer to this, but it's important to answer it well, to, you know, to have a good objective and to have a sense that something is actually doable as opposed to like it being a fool's errand where you're never going to get to the end of this. And, and so much of management is that, right? It, it's about assessing what's doable with the resources you have. It's the appropriate caution, which is it shouldn't be, we have new technology, let's implement it and figure out what we're going to use it for. It should be, let's figure out exactly what our business strategy calls for, exactly how we plan to serve customers or differentiate or deliver products or services, and how might the new technology serve as means to our ends. Exactly. 
you put it better than I did. Well, I like the way you framed all of this for our listeners. I think the foundation is we've got to be tech literate, data literate, data savvy, AI literate. We don't have to be experts in any of that, but we better be really good at asking good questions, deep thinking, and thinking about our own thinking and deep learning as learning ourselves. Exactly. That's where it all starts. All right, Vasant, as we wrap up, we have a question that we ask all our guests. Oh, oh. Here it is. What are you curious about and learning now? Fun, work, deep research interest? Yeah, yeah. So I've actually got a new project in understanding a smell. Did you ever read this book called Perfume? No. Oh, you got to read Perfume by Patrick Susskind. It's sort of a very dark story, I have to admit, but just fascinating. But I've just, you know, for the last year or so, I've gotten into olfaction and just sort of studying, working with some neuroscientists and looking at brain patterns of mice in response to odorants. But yeah, basically, you know, just understanding smell and its uh, implications, because I think it's one of those less understood senses, and it probably has great implications for medicine, healthcare, security, all kinds of things. Um, so that's something I've gotten into, very different from what I do in business and decision-making. But since you asked, that's my current project. And and it all started with a munchkin from high school approaching me two years ago, who was running a sneaker business, and he wanted to get into trading. And, and we started talking about a sneaker business. And I said, how do you convince people that you're selling authentic sneakers? And he said, oh, that's a great question. I've got to pay this company StockX. 14% of the value of the shoe. And I said, so what do they do? Do they smell the shoe to see whether it's been worn before? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, that too, but they actually, you know, uh, you can tell from the glue and the materials whether something is counterfeit. So I told him, I said, why don't you build a machine that knows how to smell? And that got me thinking about smell and, you know, getting a machine to learn how to smell. So that was the, the beginning of it, was some high school munchkin contacting me and you know, about wanting to trade sneakers. Wow, that's awesome. Beautiful story, Vasan. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Enjoyed it, Alan. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again to Vasan Dar for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>